Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. We're in week two of, as you see, A Tale of Two Shepherds. We are actually in the book of Third John. And that's uh, talking, we'll kind of start there and then we're going to move on from there. But I, I kind of said something last week and I believe it with my whole heart. I have, as you know, I'm the pastor of the church. I, I'm, you know, I don't work somewhere else and then just kind of, you know, moonlight in here. I think that's the word, you know, on Sunday mornings and come in and, and do that. I, I've, I've committed my life to this. I know that my life, my calling, if you will, to use a very Christian term, my calling is for me to be in the local church. And, and part of my calling in the local church is to want to inspire you to become the best that you can possibly be. And wherever God would plant me, whether it's this place or my, the ministry that I was in in Florida or wherever the Lord would place me, that I know that, that within me He's just put in this fire for the local church. Amen? Just this fire. There's just something about the local church. When the local church is the best that it can possibly be, and when the Holy Spirit's moving within the local church, there's nothing else like it on planet Earth. There's nothing else like it. And if you look back in, in, the, in the history books and you look in the, in the New Testament and you kind of see the movement, yeah, you know, the movement of Christ and what Christianity has done, sure, some of the things, or there's been terrible things done in Jesus' name. But when the local church is the best that they can possibly be, there's nothing else like it. And it takes, it takes me and it takes you to be the best that we can be as Christians and through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's kind of interesting. I'm kind of thinking, you know, we're at the 30-year mark. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago last week, uh, you know, also, and like the 30-year mark. And, you know, in, in the life of every church, there's, there's stages, you know. It's just kind of like the ebbs and flows. You go through, like, you go through highs and then you go through lows. You know, you go through times of just growth where people are just coming and coming and coming and then as I know in things kind of plateau and you know just kind of stay the same and then all of a sudden you know you start to see the Holy Spirit do a work in people and then you see people you inviting your friends and saying hey I want to tell you about my church God's doing something in my church and hey there's this message that's going on in my church and then when when you start pouring into other people and investing in other people then we stop plateauing and then we we bump up again that's what I've seen over the last three years. And really, the, the health of every church, the health of every church is determined by the quality of its relationships. The health of, of every church. No, I'm not just talking about Double Bible Church. I'm talking about every church. I'm talking about all the other churches that are meeting right now. And, you know, and all of those, are, we're going to try and beat to lunch, right? I mean, all of them. Every church, it's like, no, I'm keeping you long today. So I'm just letting you know. You're not beating anybody. Um... But, but the, the health of our church is really in the basis of the relationships within this church. It always has been. And yet, the church goes through stages. Like, we go through stages with our kids, don't we? Your parents, do you go through stages? Do you go through some stages as parents? You're like, I never want to go back to that stage ever again. Some of you are in that, and we could probably just sit down and just have like a prayer meeting for the next hour, and it probably still wouldn't be enough. You know, I'm like, you go through stages, even within your own life. And several years ago, we, we were kind of going through this stage with my youngest, with Gracie. I mean, she's got a beautiful blue eyes, and, you know, she's just got a sweet round face and beautiful hair. And, you know, I'm setting it up. She is all of these things. But, but she wasn't always that beautiful, sweet little girl. And when she was, I don't even know how old she was, like probably two or three years old. I mean, I'm pretty much scarred. I really haven't been able to move on past this point. But, you know, like two or three years old, she's really young, and, and every time that I would scold her, she has, she has a very, very bold and very stern personality, you know, I think she gets that from me, I'm not really sure though, anybody say amen, no, you weren't supposed to, so, you know, you kind of go through these things, and, you know, and she's like in the middle of this stage, and every time that I would scold her, or her mom would scold her, her response would be in this, in this stage, and it was, it was a painful stage, she would say, you're not the boss of me. Oh, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. And so I would sit back and, you know, and I'd do something and I thought, well, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just pushing a little too hard. 
Maybe I'm pushing a little too hard. I'm going to back up just a little. Maybe I'm pushing a little too hard. So I would, I would pull it back a little bit and I would say, well, honey, you know you're not supposed to do that. It wouldn't make a bit of difference. She would put her hands on her hips. Good illustration so far, right? She'd say, you're not the boss of me. And every time that she would get in trouble, her voice would raise, 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 and raise. And she was basically pushing back against me. But then, you know, she's smart like her mama. She's smart. By the way, as parents right now in this stage, we were absolutely lost. We didn't take her outside because we didn't want whatever she had to, like, infect someone else. So we kept her inside. (laughs) As parents, we, we only went to Walmart at night, you know. I'm like... We were tired through this. I mean, parents, you know, we're like tired. This is like a two-year process, and we were exhausted every single day. You're not the boss of me. She wouldn't let me, let her mother and I, you know, discipline her. It was just, it was a painful experience. But then all of a sudden, she's, she's smart. Like I said, she's smart like her mom. And in this stage, she kind of moved beyond the you're not the boss of me stage to where her comment, which, I mean, I was dumbfounded when she said it, but her comment then was, Jesus is the boss of me. So then I'm thinking, what in the world do I say to that? <laughs> so then as a dad, I sat back and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in ministry at this point. I'm like, good night. I should, have, I should have a really good, sound, spiritual answer, you know. And then, I, and then after a while, and I'll be honest with you, she would say, well, Jesus is the boss of me. And I'm like, you're right. And I turn around and I'm like, you're right. What do I do now? So then, you know, we try and kind of go through the stage and maneuver the stage. I'd talk to Marla and I'd say, babe, I have no idea what to do right now. She says, Jesus is the boss of me. She's right. And it's like she's winning and she's still doing whatever she wants to do. But then, you know, as parents, as parents, we were strong. And we stood up to her, to her. We stood up to her. And she came up to me, both guns blazing. She had moved beyond the you're not the boss of me, that Jesus is the boss of me. And I said, yes. Jesus is the boss of you, and He's the boss of me. And He says that He disciplines those that He loves, and He gave me the right hand of righteousness. So you better mind your own business and listen to what I say. It happened. Eventually, we got through that stage. Eventually. Some gray hair, you know, a call to the hair club for men, you know, and, and it was difficult. And we were just, you know, we, we were just on the edge of giving up, but then God showed up and he helped us. And you know what? We got out of that stage. We recovered. We didn't have all the answers. And yet her answer was exactly right, isn't it? Jesus is the boss of me. And I'm like, oof. Although we don't really like to, to probably hear that. Jesus is the boss, you know. And, and many times, um, this, can, this idea of bossing can be problematic in the church, can it? It can be problematic because at, at some level you say, you know, you're not the boss of me. And if we're honest, even when, you know, when the church is doing what the church is supposed to do, this doesn't happen. But when the church gets off cue just a little bit and then they start trying to boss other people, or they start trying to boss non-Christians, then things get out of whack. And then they get off the rails of what God's ideal is. And then the church is not the best what the church can be. When we start bossing other people, and you know what? This has even been a problem in the church, in the church, to where even what I I think would probably be good, well-meaning Christians start trying to boss other Christians. Painful, isn't it? They start bossing them and they start saying things to them and then they start, start dividing in them. And, and really, that's what we're going to see in our text. If you could open your Bible to 3 John. Um, if you don't know where that is, I'm going to give you a clue. It's actually three books into the Bible. If you go to the back of your Bible, you're going to be in Revelation And then you're going to go one book over, which is probably one page in your Bible. It's the book of Jude. And then the next page over would be 3 John. If you don't have your Bible, it's cool. We have them kind of scattered throughout the place. Tap somebody's shoulder um, and get yourself a Bible. We think that the Word of God is the authority over our lives, that the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word. So not only in this setting, but also in your home, I I would implore you to, to dig into God's Word. 
the, the answers for all of life's struggles are here. They're here. Sometimes they're on the surface. Sometimes you've got to dig them out just a little bit. Well, the problem that, that we see here in 3 John, starting in verse 9, is quite interesting. Let me give you just a, a brief context. We're actually going to be taking a small tour of the New Testament. We're going to start in 3 John. I'm going to reference Matthew 18, but you don't need to flip there. It'll be on the screen. You can write it down if you want to check it later. At Matthew 18, verses 1 and 6. And then we're going to spend most of our time, and we're going to get our application from Acts 15. Free of charge. I'm your tour guide. All right? So the, the context of 3 John is very simple. Two pastors talking to each other. John is writing this short letter to a guy by the name of Gaius. And Gaius is a godly man. He was commended last week. We talked about this. He was commended for his hospitality. He was doing the right thing. And, and any time that a, a Christian does the right thing, they should be commended. Amen? And because it's so easy to do the wrong thing. So Gaius is commended by John and he's saying, hey... I have heard about the movement that is going on around you. I've heard how you've opened up your home to, these, to, to Christians and kind of traveling pastors and missionaries. And he says, I commend you, brother. You're doing a great work. But then he gives a stern warning right in the middle of this very short book. He gives a, storm, a stern warning about a guy by the name of Diotrephes. Verse 9. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to be first. He loves to be first. He will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us, not satisfied with that. He says, so there, here there's like, there's like levels here. So this diatrophies, who's, who's a Christian leader, he's... Now he started to gossip maliciously about, about other Christians in the area. And now it's growing. He says he's not satisfied with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. So there was division with words. There's division from others. And now we're going to see there's divi division for others. Big problem. Big problem. He says he also stops those who want to do so. And he puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. So this diatrophies, is, he's a church leader. He's, he's a Christian. And he's in the church, and all of a sudden he's just got this, he's got this bent about these other Christians. He just doesn't like these other Christians. And, and it starts, he has this division with words, and he's starting to to gossip maliciously. And then, he's, and then he gets to the point where he's starting to, to pull away himself, away from those people. There's division from others. And he's like, you know what? Because I like to be first. He's like, so I'm up here, you're down here. So he's creating his own division. Do you see that, church? So there's division with words, division from others, but then at the end of that, now he's kicking them out of the church, other Christians. He's kicking them out of the church. So division with words, divisions from people, but now there's divisions for people as a church leader. This is, this is dangerous. This is incredibly dangerous. That somebody would even, you know, cloaked in a position of leadership to what he would go in and he was, he was basically disrupting the work of God and the mission of God, what was going on in that church. He was disrupting it. So then it was like in one breath there was this short letter to Gaius and he says, Gaius, you're doing a great job. You're, I want to commend you the hospitality for the sake of the name. Remember that from last week? There's just this incredible work going on. And then right smack dab in the middle of this book and he says, but there's this guy, Triophilus, Diotrephes, easy for me to say. If you can speak Greek better than me, go ahead. I, I'm not very good at it. But there's this guy right in the middle of this, and he says, he's posing such a big problem that I, I, I can't get around it. I've got to talk about it. But I'll be honest with you, it's not a new problem. Jesus endured the same thing, Matthew 18, verse 1. Jesus endured the same thing. And this is... This is what it looked like in Jesus' day. 
This question was asked in Matthew 18.1. This will be on the screen. Basically, he says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? So they're saying, Can it be me? Can it be me? Can it be me? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? In other words, they wanted to be what, church? First. They wanted to be first. And they said, well, who's greatest in the kingdom? Can it be me? These are disciples. Now, you know, the, the term Christians hadn't even been used yet. So they're just disciples at this point. They're just kind of like, Jesus is the rabbi. He's their teacher. He's like walking and talking. And they're like right behind him. And they're just scratching their head. And they're trying to figure out what in the world he's doing. And, you know, all of these things. And they're, they're just amazed at the, the miracles that he's able to do. And yet they're perplexed by it. They knew there was something compelling about Jesus. And yet they didn't have all the answers. Which should be hopeful because, you know, it's hopeful to me. I don't have all the answers. So they asked the question, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Can I be first? And look what Jesus, look how Jesus responds in Matthew 18, 6. Very interesting. This will be on the screen as well. Matthew 18, 6. It says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That'll take your breath away. He says, I just want you to know that, yeah, in your quest to be number one, in your quest to be number one, as, as these disciples are like, you know, can I, can I, can I be first in the kingdom? Can, can, I, can I be the guy? I want to be the guy. Can I be the guy? And Jesus said, I just want you to know, if you become a stumbling block for other people coming to the faith, it would be like tying a large millstone, which was very prominent in their culture, that they would grind grain with, or they would pound grain with and break it up to make it usable. He says, I, I just want you to know that it's such a big deal and that Jesus uses this outlandish language. I mean, that, that just like brings something in me. Like, I'm not comfortable with Jesus saying that. Although it's Jesus, what am I going to say? Right? And yet, I sit back and I, I, I see the, the, the integrity of Jesus. And I see the, the depth of what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? There's going to be a day. And maybe it's right here in Dublin, Georgia. But yes, you may sit back and say, you know what, there's a church on every corner. But not every church is supposed to be Dublin Bible Church. But he's saying, don't try to be number one. Because no church exists for one person. No human person. It exists to exalt and lift, what? The name of Jesus Christ. He says, so for you, Christian, watch how you try to be number one. Watch how... You try to be number one. Maybe you don't even intentionally try to be number one, but, but you kind of bring some things into it where, where you're, you're pushing your own kind of agenda. You're pushing your own thing, and you don't like this, and, and this, and, and you talk over here, and you start dividing here, and you divide there. Jesus says, just know that for you, if you become a stumbling block for other Christians, it will have a damning effect on your life. It's heavy. It's heavy. And yet I promised you that we would find most of our application from Acts. So if you could go to the left in your Bible. We're not going to be returning to 1 John. Or Matthew 18 for that matter. But I'm just trying to show you that this has been a common problem in the Christian world common since the, the early days of the faith. As a matter of fact, at, at this time, give you the context, this is the, the Council of Jerusalem. The book of Acts is kind of a history book and of kind of how God moved in, in the early days of the faith, right after Pentecost, after Jesus resurrected and all of these things and the movement. Holy Spirit came down. If you've been in church a while, you probably are familiar with that. And yet the Holy Spirit just started to go out and gave people different languages. And, and the movement of Christ is just going here and it's going there. And people are speaking languages they had not spoken before. And there's just this incredible, just awe-inspiring thing that's happening in this movement of God in, the local, in, in local churches, but also the, the universal church as a whole. And yet in Acts 15 is the first council. The way that the, way that the church in the, the early 
uh, the early church leaders, this is, you know, Peter and Paul and, and the fellas, the way that things would be handled and issue, the issues of their day would be handled is they would come together and they would have a council. And they would say, well, you're teaching one thing and you're teaching one thing, but you're doing one thing and you're doing one thing and it's creating a problem. So he says, why don't we all sit around a table and why don't we talk about it like men? Why don't we all come together? Let's put everything out on the table because something's happening here where, where the main thing is supposed to be Jesus, but yet there's a drifting. And I'll be honest with you, every church can drift if they don't keep their eyes on Jesus. Every pastor can drift if he doesn't keep his, eye, his eyes on Jesus. Every Christian can drift if they don't keep their eyes on Jesus. And yet, there's this, this inner working within the early church where they're starting to have some problems. So they call together a council, the first council. The council of Jerusalem happens around 50 A.D. Around 50. The date's kind of iffy, a couple of years one way or the other. And yet, they come together, a bunch of, of Christian men, and you'll see the problem that they're kind of jumping into really early in the text. Now, we're going to do this a little bit different. We have several verses that we need to go through. So I'm going to take a section of Scripture. We're going to talk about that. We're going to draw application from it. And then we're going to move on down uh, this passage. So here we go, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circum circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the big issue here. This is the big issue. The guys are uncomfortable right now. This is, like, this is like the big deal. This is the reason why they're together. This is the reason why the council's meeting, because now it's a matter of faith. It's not just a matter of practice. It's a matter of the faith because this idea of circumcision is being brought in from the Jewish, the Jewish Christians. They had been raised Jews and then they had this profound experience with Christ and now all of a sudden, now they're wanting to mix the two faiths and it's becoming problematic. Verse 2, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Stop right there for a moment. The movement of God started with Jews. But then there was a moment, and this was even, this was told about in the Old Testament, that they were going to be Gentiles. That means anybody who's not a Jew. That, that the Jews would be basically the spokesperson of the faith to begin with. But then there's a transition that happens, really, in the book of Acts, through the conversion of the apostle Paul. He was, the, he was Saul, converted to Paul in Acts 9. And you see this, this kind of, transference, if you will, is not just a Jewish audience, now it's a Gentile audience. People who were normally, they, they were not even one with the faith, and they were coming from all different types of pagan uh, belief systems. Now they're being radically saved by Jesus. Now they're being saved. And now that the, you know, the, 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 they're taking the faith, and they're understanding who Jesus is, and they're believing by faith, and they're starting to live it out in practice, and now other Jewish people are kind of noticing this and they're scratching their head and they're saying, wow, they're fired up more than we are. And they started not to like it. They started not to like it. Verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So here you have it. Here are the people who want to be first. The Pharisees, right? We know this. If you've been in church a while, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were a group of the religious leaders who opposed the work of Jesus. They did it with regularity. And yet they always tried to be a stumbling block for Jesus. And he was always about three steps ahead of him. Duh, because he's God, right? So then you have these, these, this group that were once Pharisees, but they had received Christ. But yet they had not 
turn back the dial on all those beliefs and now they're, now they're bringing some of these pharisaical believing, believing systems into Christianity. And it's a problem. They're saying, hey, we've had to go through circumcision and we've had to obey the law of Moses our whole life and then we receive Jesus and that's cool. But you know what? They should have to do the same thing. In other words, they're saying, you know what? I want to be first in this party. I mean, I appreciate what you're doing, Jesus. It's really cool, and the movement's really good. You know, the music's really good, and I really appreciate what, you know, these people's lives are changing, and the Gentiles are hearing the message, but, but come on, we're the Jews. We're the, we're the chosen people. We want to be first. We want to be first. And yet, the problem exists, specifically from verse when the Gentiles, when the Pharisees, this party from the Pharisees, they, they say that the Gentiles must be circumcised and require, required to obey the law of Moses. You see, the Pharisees knew that they couldn't live by the law of Moses. So why in the world would somebody have a self-imposed faith system that they couldn't adhere to themselves, but yet they want to impose that on someone else? Doesn't make sense, does it? But you know what? In, in a church our size, smaller or bigger, you know, it, it, we're not trying to like stamp out Dublin Bible Church Christians, okay? That'd be pathetic. I mean, you're great people, don't get me wrong, but that'd be pathetic. Because I believe each and every one of us is made unique by, the, by our Creator God. I believe that every one of us has a destiny. We have a hope. If you are alive in Christ, you have a hope beyond these days. I'm not trying to make people and trying to have people replicate my life. That would be pitiful. Of all the mistakes that I've made and all the things that I've done wrong, why in the world would I want to put that on someone else? I want people to have more and better than what I have ever had. I want people to have a deeper understanding of what I have. I want people to walk in, in with the, the Holy Spirit in such a, just a life-enriching way that, that is beyond words and comprehension. That's what I want. So us in this church, we're not trying to stamp out, well, we've got it figured out, everybody. Every, Dublin, Lawrence County, Middle Georgia, we're trying to stamp it out. Be like us, be like us. We're not saying that at all. We're saying be like Christ, be like Christ, be like Christ. That's what this church is about. There's nobody at this church. We're not trying to be first. We're just trying to make a difference, aren't we? We're not trying to be first. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Go figure. This is Peter. You know. This is Peter. He says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Peter says, I want to call to attention the work of God. By the way, the, the points this morning, that's the first point, call to attention. The, this is very, like a very Baptist thing to do. All these points have the letter A in them. Yeah, I worked really hard for that. So, Peter says, I want to call attention. I want you to realize what's happening. That the same God, the same Jesus who died for us on the cross, also died to, to save Gentiles. And it's working. He says, I want to call your attention to the movement of God right here. I want you to understand there's something bigger than us. There's something bigger than Dublin Bible Church. There's something bigger than the founders of this church. There's something bigger than the pastor of this church. There's something going on here, and it's going on in your hearts and your lives. And I believe it. I know it. I see it. I hear the stories. I'm friends with you. I, I see that even in your lives that you're changing. You're becoming who God wants you to be. And I say amen to that. Can anyone clap or anything about just the victories that we have in Jesus? So Peter says, I, I want to just call to attention what's happening. The movement's bigger than me. This is Peter. You know, he, he was always one. He liked to stand up and he, he liked to be first in his own right. But he wasn't trying to be first in this situation. He says, I just want to call your attention. Everybody in the audience, he says, God's doing something. And it's bigger than us. 
Then, something I think is profound. Verse 9, he says, He made no distinction between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. So, Peter is saying, they have God's approval also. Second point this morning, called to attention. They have God's approval. He says, we are not to get in the way of what God's doing. How dare us think that we have some sort of controlling faction here that we can control and manipulate the Holy Spirit. He says, how dare us, how dare you Pharisees think that you're going to impose this upon someone else. This is a big problem. He says, just the same way that we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the same way the Gentiles are. Just the same way that we were free from the indebtedness of our sin is the same way that Gentiles are going to be free from the indebtedness of their sin. Hello, they already have God's approval. That we, we don't need to approve of what's going on. We just sit back because God approves. That's what this church is about. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you've been. And quite frankly, it, it doesn't matter where you think you're going. If you're saved, if you're a born-again Christian in this church, and I realize that even within earshot of this message and people in this in the sanctatorium, as I call it, where you're sitting right now, you know, I believe that there's people who are, who are Christians and they're non-Christians. And I realize that some of this seems absolutely foreign to you. But if you're a non-Christian or if you're seeking, if you're seeking the faith, I, I just want to say this. Isn't this the church that you would want for your community? Maybe not for you personally, but isn't that the church you would want for your community? And if so, maybe we need to lean in, Christian or non-Christian. Happy with people of the faith or not happy with people of the faith. And yet, we see from this verse that and Peter makes this astounding thing. He says, he made, that God made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts. Their hearts were black as coal. Their hearts were so far away from God, and yet they started to believe in Jesus. And then they started to confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they started to ask Him for forgiveness of their sins, and they're starting to be changed from, from the inside out. And He says, can't you see it in their life? He says, God approves of them, so we should not get in the way of that. We should help them, because when... The local church is the local church. There's nothing else like it. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God? He gets kind of difficult here. This is Peter. He's not afraid to show some backbone. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, verse 11. We believe it is through grace through the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. So he says, hello, let's look at the whole picture here, folks. Then he uses kind of, it's very stern language, isn't it? Very Peter-esque language, if you're familiar with the Gospels. And he says, are you kidding me? And in essence, he's saying, guys, we need to check our attitude. We need to check our attitude. He says, Everybody, and he's, he's looking at them and he says, just check your attitude, would you? Just check your attitude. Are you really welcoming them, these people into the faith? Are you, are you really welcoming people into the faith? Are you really welcoming people into the church? Or do you like to control the church? Are you, are, are you, are you just kind of, you know, is your attitude one that, well, you know what, everything's fine as long as nothing changes. Check your attitude. What is that like? And Peter goes to them and he says, Hey, fellas, I just, think about this. Think, think all the way around this. If God approves, God's doing a work, then obviously it's your attitude that's the hindrance. That obviously it's your attitude and maybe you just have a quest to be first. And yet, two little phrases that go with this idea of attitude. Attitude determines aptitude. Attitude determines aptitude. Your ability to grow. Your ability to grow. Just the ability to grow. Like your attitude determines your aptitude. That's like a college word. 
So ability to grow, put that in, the, uh, put that in parentheses. If you don't know what parentheses is, I've got nothing for you. I don't know how to help you with that one. But your attitude, you know this in your own life. You know this in your own life. You instructed your kids. If you've raised kids or you're raising kids, you know this to be true, that your attitude so many times determines how far you can go, doesn't it? You know, I just got done teaching um, some little girl softball. It was so much fun. It brought so much joy to my heart. And not just because it was my daughter, because it was other girls. And you know what? I would, I would see these, these girls kind of come into the mix, and they'd come in from all different directions. And some of them were like, you know, girly girls, and, you know, doing their nails up and all that. And all that's great and fine and well, and I think, I think that's cool. You know, and, and yet there are some other girls who'd come in there so hardcore, they would like challenge me, and I thought that was cool. And, you know, it was just totally revealed to me that your attitude determines your aptitude because I would see these girls didn't matter where you came from if they came ready to play right they were able to play they may not make all the plays but they were willing to learn and they were ready to grow as ball players same thing happens for Christians same thing happens second thing attitude determines altitude attitude determines altitude how high you grow in the Lord. How much spiritual growth you actually have. In a lot of ways, you control your own destiny as far as that goes. I believe if, if you're a Christian, every one of us in one way or another would say they want to grow deeper with the Lord. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. And yet, that's what we want. And your attitude so many times determines your altitude. How, how high you go. How how how. How much closer are you going to get to the Lord? Are you just going to keep doing the same thing? Are you going to try and seek to be first in the church? Are you going to try and be seek to be first in your family? Men, are you, going to be, are you going to be the first because you're the spiritual leader of the family and you're just going to go in and you want all this authority and you want to be first? Ladies, maybe whatever the deal is for you and you say, you know what, well, I handle everything at home and I handle the kids and I work too and all this. In other words, you're saying, I want to be first. I want to be first. I want to be first. We've got to check our attitude, don't we? We've got to check our attitude. Because attitude determines aptitude, just the ability to grow, and then altitude, how high we're going to go, how much closer we're going to grow in the Lord. It's a very, very big deal. And yet there's this, this inner working here. And, and when Jesus, or rather, when, when Peter is, is calling them and, and because of the Lord Jesus, what he has done in saving them. And yet in verse 10 and 11, he says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? It says, doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Christian, it doesn't make any sense why we would be a stumbling block for other people coming to the faith. Doesn't make any sense. I understand there are things that we like, there are things that we don't like. I understand that we have desires. I understand that we all have desires. And we all like different things. Amen? And yet every church, just like this church, is called to be relevant to its generation that they're trying to reach. Every church is this way. And yet we have a responsibility that we need to daily check our attitude. There are things that we don't like, there are things that we do like. And yet our attitude determines aptitude. It also happens in the church, because of the health of the church is determined by the quality of its, what? Relationships. It's a big deal. It takes all of us. We need to be fired up. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. We need to just be lit up with the grace of Jesus, that we would just shower that in our workplaces. We would shower that in our family, that first and foremost, we would start living out the very truths that we proclaim. Starts right here. And it works its way right here. And it has to reveal itself right here. If not, it's not real. We have to check our attitude. We have to check our attitude. And Colossians 2, 6 and 7 kind of helps us with this, this idea of attitude. Paul wrote this. He says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord... Okay, so here's Christ, this, is, this is to Christians... He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, 
Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Rooted and built up in Him. That means continuing to grow. Strengthened in the faith. As you were taught. And overflowing with thanksgiving. So Paul writes, Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Be thankful that you are not where you are not where you were before he found you. He says, focus on your own personal revival. Focus on your own personal growth. Your own personal growth, rub, it rubs off on other people. Our attitude rubs off on other people. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, Christians, I just want you to get it right. Because it's nothing like the local church when the local church is at its best. And it takes more than a pastor to be a local church. It takes more than a worship leader to be a local church. It takes more than a paid staff to be a local church. We're just that much of what a local church is because we're all the church. You're the church when you go home. You're the church when you go to work. You're the church when, when you go to a red light. You're the church the way you engage people at the bank, the way that when you go to Walmart, if you go to... Well, Walmart, or if you go to Kroger, you are the church. You don't stop being the church. If you're a Christian, you are part of the church. And isn't it just like Jesus to put other people first? Didn't he put you first when he went to the cross? Didn't he say that, you know, we're supposed to basically, husbands, that we're supposed to lay our lives down for our wives? Just as Christ did the church, that's what Ephesians 5 says. So much so, Christians, that we need to put other people first. We don't need to examine how other people are coming to the faith. We don't need to examine what the environment is. We don't need to examine anything else other than our hearts. That's what we need to examine. Or we need to allow the Holy Spirit just an open door into our hearts to permeate all of the things that hinder our growth. Amen? I believe that's what we all want. Now, verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So all of these, all of these things are happening. And they're starting to talk about the work of God. And as Paul and Barnabas are now in the mix, and they're starting to share, he's saying, you need to take into account the miraculous signs and wonders that God is doing. That's point number four. Take into account. Understand that God's doing a work. And they just become silent among the crowd. The people are just sitting back, and they're in awe. They're enamored by what's going on. Do you know why? They're talking about God's activity. They're talking about lives being changed. They're talking about miraculous signs and wonders, people being healed. And they're like, I can't explain it. I, I can't, I don't know what to tell you. People's lives are being changed. And when somebody's life is being changed and the Holy Spirit is doing a unique work in them, I'll just be honest with you, it is awe-dropping. And you sit back and you say, wow, there's nothing else like it. And there's nothing else like that person to be radically saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now start to pour into a local church. And they realize that, that life doesn't just exist for themselves. And now they're part of the local church. And now the local church has some steam. And the local church is growing and moving and being challenged. And now they've taken that brokenness. And they've put that in there. And they've been mended along the way because of Jesus. And now they're starting to serve in the local church. And now they bring hope to their community. But yet, they didn't stay where they were. They were mended along the way. And then they bring in hope into the local church. And then the local church starts to gain momentum. And the local church becomes the best that they can possibly be. Let us as a church just sit back and just take into account the work that God's doing here. Just take into account the things that God's doing here. Reconciling marriages. People being saved. Just, just sit back, take into account. When, when you sit back and you have a desire, something you don't like, or a concern here, a concern there, just go to this right now. All these things would be applicable to this. But just take into account what God is doing. Because I think, if you're like me, when I, even the things that I don't like, 
in life, if I sit back or if I see a Christian not doing the things that I want them to do and I think they should do and I really, I, I, you know, I, I think that they need to listen to me and all these things, if I were just to sit back and just take into account the things that God's already doing, I'm quiet. I realize that I, you know, when it comes to God's work, I don't really have a whole lot to add. He can pretty much handle that all by himself as long as I give him the glory. We're in the home stretch. Verse 12. Rather, verse 13. When they finished, James, brother of Jesus, he spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And this is an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord all and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. That they have been known for ages. So he says, this has been prophesied for years and years to come. There's a place for, for the, the Jewish believers. There's a place for the Jewish believers. But then James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and he's the next one to talk. And the crowd's quiet, just like you're quiet. And he stands up to talk and he's speaking with an authoritative voice right after the other guys had come up. And he stands up and he's got some backbone. And he, he says, I just want you to know, Jewish believers, there's a place for you. Amos prophesied this. But understand, there's also a place for the Gentiles. There's also a place for the church and that God's doing a work in both places big idea right here big idea verse 19 he said it is my judgment as the crowd stills themselves and he stands up and they're listening attentively he says it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God that we should not make it difficult. He says, instead, verse 20, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues of every Sabbath. And basically what he's saying here, he says, there's three things that, there's only three things they don't need to keep the whole law. He says, good night. We couldn't keep the whole law. The, the, the law was a stumbling block for us, and it's going to be a stumbling block for them. He says, so there's three things that I know that we can do. And by saying these three things, he does a very, very important thing. What he does is he, he, he first and foremost, he, he carries out the New Testament doctrine of grace. He says... We're not trying to work off our salvation here, folks. We're not trying to work off our salvation. There's a place. There's a place, and it's God's grace, and we need to experience this, and we need to keep that the main thing. But then also with that, he says, okay, now I'm holding these two things in balance, the New Testament of grace, but then also the Old Testament law. And he says, I'm holding these two things in place. And he's only pulling out these three ideas that they need to do, these three ideas. The food polluted by idols because there was all sorts of idol worship going on in, in the pagan lands that the gospel had gone to. So this was a very, this was a big dividing line between pagans and Christians. Not Jews, Gentiles, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, between pagans and Christians. So the food polluted by idols. It says we can do this. This is easy. Also, sexual immorality. Because there's something about sexual immorality. I talked about this a few weeks ago. There's something about sexual immorality. It just doesn't affect us on the surface level. And it just doesn't affect us when we engage in that activity with someone else. It, it infects us down to our core. And yet, James says, I, we're going ha to have relationships we, we're going to marry. We're going to have kids. We need to have healthy relationships. We need to have relational boundaries. We need to have all of these things. And we certainly don't need to bring sexual immorality into the mix. And then he says also, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood, because part of their belief system was that the, the blood 
was what brought life. So that was also this, this Jewish thing that was going in. And he says, you know what? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's not take our eyes off Jesus. Let's remember that we have this, the New Testament wasn't even written at this time, but just know that we have this doctrine of grace that we get through Jesus. And yet, I realize there's tension, and then we have this Old Testament law. And he says, I just want to make it really, really simple. And he makes it really simple by what he said in verse 19. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is the early application of Acts 15. This is the early application. This is the big idea. This is something that, I'll be honest with you, keeps me up at night. This is something that is that, that become, become problematic. And this is something that we, as a church, have not always got right. But we think that if people are going to be coming to the faith, we should not be putting up Christianese stumbling blocks for them to get there. Amen? We believe that if somebody is, is going to endure and they're going to come in and sit through one of my messages and they're going to sing songs they don't even really know about, but yet they're kind of inquiring about the faith, that we should not put any obstacles in the way for them to do so. Do you believe that? So the early application is the application that we are striving to live out right here at Dublin Bible Church. We don't always get this right. As a matter of fact, sometimes I wonder if I get it wrong more than I get it right. But yet... I can't practice my ministry contrary to what the Word of God says. And it says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for people, for Gentiles, coming to the faith. It has challenged me. It, it shapes the way that I deliver messages. It shapes the, the songs that we sing. It shapes the style of worship that we have. It shapes the way that this place looks. Everything about it. Because if we want to be relevant to the generation that we're trying to seek, we have to do things that our generation would think are appealing. We don't always get it right. But I believe that when the local church is at its best, there's nothing else like it. When the local church made up of Christians, just like you and I, that we are so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that we bring our faith to our workplace. We bring our faith to our family and to our neighborhoods and absolutely bring in our faith and applying it at home. There's nothing else like it. So why would we want to make it difficult for people to get what we have? 